Eavesdrop on Experts, a podcast about stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. The thousands of Melbourne commuters that walk our streets every day would not have a clue about the history of the ground beneath them. It would have several stories to tell, and not just the land either. The buildings, facades, the topography we've created for ourselves and changed so many times over the years would each have something to say about our identity and the way we see ourselves. Museums and galleries can go some way to explain to you what is and was here, But what about industrial ruins, older buildings, neglected tracts of land? Dr Timothy Edensor teaches cultural geography at the Manchester Metropolitan University and is Principal Research Fellow at the School of Geography at the University of Melbourne. He was recently a part of a symposium titled Dubious Heritage, which explored questions around the retrospective value of modernity. His varied career has taken him all over the world, where he's studied tourism, national identity, light festivals and Melbourne stone buildings, his current passion. Dr Timothy Edensor caught up with our reporter Steve Grimwade in the middle of Melbourne, where else but outside the iconic exhibition buildings, to chat about his academic life, culture and identity through geography and the joy of simply walking around to get a sense of where and who you really are. If I imagine myself as an academic, I suspect, uh, I think, I could only find myself following your path. Um, This is not necessarily because of your research focus, which is interesting, but rather it's your scope. Over 20 years, your publications have covered tourism, Braveheart and Scottish identity, national identity, industrial ruins, and most recently, light and darkness and, well, stone. Um, It looks like you're having fun. I always have a kind of maxim, uh, and my job is shaped by this, which is to really be guided by my passions. So any, anything that I'm interested in, I will follow. And of course, I don't necessarily stay on the same path. I might be looking at light and dark, but then suddenly I'll be gripped by stone in Melbourne, and then I just have to kind of follow my nose and, and enthusiasm. Does that mean your dean or head of school just hates you? Luckily... Because these enthusiasms lead to a great number of publications, they let me off the hook. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, why, in the first instance, I mean, be, become an academic? Yeah, it's really interesting because I was a. I, before I became an academic, I did lots of uh, less salubrious jobs, should we say. I was a postman, I worked in a foundry, uh, I worked uh, in a plucking turkeys. I've done lots of kind of really un- unpleasant and also more mundane office jobs. Uh, and I think it occurred to me at one point that it would be really nice to kind of do something that was a little more stimula- stimulating, where, I, where work wasn't simply a means to an end, in, a means to get a wage packet, but actually where work could be a passion. And so in, in the United Kingdom, I think you have it here, this marvellous institution called the Open University. So that was my way into, into higher education. And I... As I think with many people, as a mature student, when I started studying, I prospered and I kind of, I was very, very excited. When you're a student and you're 18, you go to university, there are other things that you're interested in, right? Uh, But when you're kind of 28, maybe not, you've kind of done those things. 
and <laughs> so yeah I was kind of really into the study at that point and I just sailed through got an open university degree masters in sociology PhD and uh, went into academia and uh, it, it, it still feels really odd to me to get up in the morning and go to work with a spring in me staff so work there's a it's actually quite hard sometimes for me to distinguish between work and leisure and that was never the case in the past <laughs> uh, so you are quite a grounded man uh, but your area of interest at first glance anyway seems a little esoteric i mean you're a cultural geographer mm. and as such i guess is it right to say that you map our relationship to culture through space and place i think that's a really good way of putting it and i would add landscape in there as well so landscape space and place are absolutely critical to the way uh, that we look at things and of course if you if you say that if you start thinking about place and landscape especially we all know them we all are intimately familiar with different kinds of places and different kinds of landscapes so it's actually not as esoteric as it first sounds actually it's kind of quite a grounded study all places have particular qualities all landscapes have particular features are interpreted in particular ways are used in particular ways so in a sense everything can be cultural geography since we live in a in a in a world and we inhabit place and landscape right now we're standing beneath the royal exhibition building a and actually an old it looks like an old brick building or an old stone building but it's actually the oldest uh, wooden building in the southern hemisphere i believe people can correct me later on that uh you know to my uh to the south i can see huge uh, uh skyscrapers uh, over the trees of the Royal Exhibition Gardens or the Carlton Gardens and around the corner we have uh, the, the new or well, the relatively new um, Melbourne Museum itself so I mean every time we look around if we pay attention we actually begin to get that sense of history and as you say that sense of who we are in culture. I think it's really true that and it's very important to think about space as not a fixed thing space place and landscape are continuously changing they're endlessly dynamic and they change all the time and often they're kind of contested People think different things should happen there. So, for instance, this very gardens, you know, this will have been contested by people who want to maybe play sports uh, in the park. But it's not really a park for that kind of thing. It's more uh, about uh, wandering around in a kind of leisurely fashion, consuming the fountains, smelling the flowers, uh, living under the, dwelling and having picnics under the shade of the trees and so forth. So there's always a lot of contestation uh, over places, I think, and they always change. Nowhere is static, and that's kind of what makes geography really interesting, is that you can always find how places have changed. And this is certainly the case when we look at you know, the recent project that I'm doing around Melbourne Stone, which is just an incredibly volatile and kind of exciting series of transformations that continue today. Let's talk a bit about stone. I mean, so much of Melbourne's stone and the, what we see now was incorporated into our buildings, uh, into our lives around the 1850s and the gold rush. And at that point in time, we were favourably compared to, to Chicago uh, as being, you know, the, the great next city. And I guess um, this becomes important for a new city trying to establish itself on the world stage. No, it does. I, I, and I kind of think what's really interesting there is that, as you say, Melbourne became very wealthy. But one of the big problems was in the early years is that bluestone was widely available. But unfortunately, uh, the local sandstones from Barrabool and Bacchus Marsh, for instance, were of very low quality. And buildings were constructed out of those sandstones, but those buildings fell apart very quickly. Uh, in, in point of fact, there's a more recent building, Newman College, which was built out of 
uh, barrable sandstone in the 1920s. Uh, I don't know why they didn't learn their lessons, because that's been falling apart ever since. But um, what's kind of interesting about this, of course, is that Melbourne had aspirations to be a kind of a grand city. Indeed, it was very wealthy, but it couldn't build if, um, fine stone buildings, should we say. It couldn't build neoclassical stone buildings without importing stone from elsewhere. In other words, without importing stone that could be easily fashioned but was also durable, namely sandstone. And so it, it brought in supplies of Tasmanian sandstone. It brought in uh, sandstone from New Zealand. But there was a huge um, surge on then to build the new parliament, um, the new parliament building that we all know now. Uh, and originally they sought high and low for some nice local or regional sandstone, couldn't find any, and so they decided to import some sandstone from New South Wales. Big mistake. <laughs> many people, including many members of Parliament, were very unhappy about this and said that this was ridiculous to have a Victorian Parliament that wasn't built out of Victorian sandstone. And very luckily, shortly before this, they found a fantastic quality sandstone in the Grampians at Heatherly Quarry. And that was subsequently quarried and indeed did serve as the sandstone that now clothes the parliament building along with many other buildings uh, in Melbourne. It's really really high quality and so uh, fiercely did people feel about this that John Woods, a local MP at the time uh, at Storwell, actually erected a sandstone pillar which is just along the road there outside the Royal Exhibition Centre made out of this very stone saying that this stone would last long after the exhibition building had fallen down. So durable was it. So this was his way of campaigning to use the, for, the, for this stone to be used in the construction of the Parliament building. How does history read these edifices? I mean, I think it's kind of interesting, isn't it, is that now we, we wouldn't tend to be so interested in building, uh, 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 making a sort of prestigious building in a neoclassical form. That would be seen as very outmoded, but of course in, in the kind of Victorian-Victorian era, it was very important that neoclassicism was the hallmark of the prestigious. So nearly all uh, town halls, government buildings, exchequers, banks were built out in this neoclassical form. Big pillars, porticos and pediments and so forth. Now we don't do that, and I kind of think what's really interesting now is that new building techniques allow us to build in glass, concrete and steel. As we can see all these huge uh, tower blocks going up, these are kind of the new prestigious buildings, these large corporate buildings. Uh, but if we do build out of stone, very often, or nearly in nearly all cases, the stone is a very thin veneer and that stone can be imported from all over the world. And indeed in the case of Melbourne, these new buildings that are going up, they will have um, maybe um, not, well, the foyer, for instance, or, or the outside of the building where you enter will be clad in stone. And very often that stone can come from Brazil, South Africa, India, China, from all over the world. It's almost as if they have a catalogue of different marbles and limestones and sandstones from across the world. And this gets imported in. So history, the historical use of, of uh, stone changes quite dramatically. And interestingly, now bluestone is being used because now we have kind of very kind of high quality cutting technologies. We can fashion bluestone in the most beautiful way. We can give it a very, very smooth surface and we can mould it in all sorts of ways that would have been impossible a hundred years ago. You've spoken about the sort of the internationalisation of, of stone use in modern buildings. 
what I've heard from you also is you have a distinct connection to place. You've mentioned Malmesbury Stone and this suburb stone and there that stone. I guess as a cultural geographer, you get to know a place extremely well. You really do. I mean, it becomes fascinating. You start to see places in a very different way. So you start to see the different ways in which stone is layered. So, for instance, at the moment, I'm living in uh, Carlton, and I'm living right next to um, Curtin Square. And Curtin Square, like nearly all the other parks, were quarries at one point in time. Nearly every single park, from here going out to Campbelltown, for instance, will, will have been either bluestone quarries or pits for bricks. So if we had an aerial photograph, of course we couldn't have done, but if we had an aerial photograph in uh, you know, 1880 or 1900, which, hovered, uh, which was taken above Melbourne, the whole of the landscape would have been absolutely pitted with these quarries and clay pits. And of course we don't see any of that now, it's all kind of filled in. But if you know how to read the landscape, then you can start to see little traces of where those quarries might have been. Speaking of reading the landscape, have you had a chance to interrogate the way Indigenous Australians read the landscape and affected the landscape? I mean, it's really important to do this. I think, I think it's incumbent upon all scholars and all cultural geographers to explore how, how that's the case and how, in fact, the circulation, in my case, the circulation of stone through Melbourne, which is what I'm interested in, it doesn't just start when the British arrive. It actually has a history long uh, before that, and there are various ways in which we might think about this. We can look at Mount William, where greenstone was quarried for tools and axes, and those greenstone routes were traded right across the whole kind of area that's now Victoria. There were huge routes of trading, whereby this greenstone, these implements, tools and weapons, were traded between different groups, different mobs. Uh, there's also uh, interesting ways in which we can identify the river. Uh, you know, if you look at the Yarra, for instance, that used to be a crossing point. There were rocks that were scattered across the river where people used to fish and used to hang out. And, of course, when the, when the British came in, they blew all those up to uh, create a sort of deep water uh, waterway. Uh, but, of course, there are still little vestiges of those rocks there. There's still a few at the side, so you get a sense of what that must have looked like and how it must have felt. Elsewhere in the city, there are a few residues of the cliffs that, that would have been here, that, but that were knocked down. Uh, and I think some of those cliffs and some of those forms of stone would have had some sort of symbolic uh, meaning. And it's kind of interesting in a way, I think, if you think about uh, Aboriginal thought and cosmologies, in a way they were kind of much more... Like we have no idea what lies beneath our feet now, as we clad the city in tarmac and grass and concrete... Uh, but the Aborigines would have had a sense of the land as a whole. They would have known what was below their feet. They would have been intimately acquainted with the rocks in the places that they lived and moved through. And I think that's also the case in Melbourne. So there's quite a lot of ways in which we might think about the different quarries, about the different trading routes, about the different symbolic uh, uses of stone. And I know, uh, I and mean, the final thing that I'll say is that near Geelong there's a stone circle, of course, which is kind of really interesting. Uh, I mean, there are archaeological interpretations of this as well. And so it, this story doesn't just start, this story of stone certainly doesn't just start with, with Australia's colonisation. I'll speak again about how stone almost always survives us, because just around the corner um, is what I thought was a public art installation, but which I've been told is not. Maybe you can correct me. Yeah, so around the corner there's a whole series of um, pediments, 
col little fragments of columns and other bits of decorated stone that used to belong to the Colonial Mutual Building that used to be in Swanston Street and was quite an iconic Melbourne building, a beautiful building in many ways, until um, 1960 when William the Wrecker were given the job of demolishing it. However, while they were given a substantial sum to demolish it, it was nowhere near enough because it took them a year to knock the thing down. So incredibly durable and hard was the structure. Uh, with um, mortar containing lead, incredible lumps of bluestone and granite welded together and joined together with incredibly uh, rigid steel cables. It took them an incredibly long time. People died uh, during the demolition. It was, a, it was an awesome um, feat to demolish this and they vowed never to take on uh, any task like this again. Although, of course, there were no buildings of that substance in Melbourne after it was knocked down. But I think people started to feel a little bit sad after it had been knocked down because it was a bit of a landmark. No, it was not knocked down because it had very high ceilings, the rooms were too big, they couldn't be adequately heated. They didn't serve the, the functions needed for modern offices. Uh, and so the rooms couldn't be rented and so it lost its value. And so, but when it was knocked down, I think people were sad. And so there are two vestiges of this. One is the, the, the large statue in the university grounds of, uh, I can't remember, it's a, a, a Greek goddess shepherding, shepherding two figures along and that used to stand on top of the doorway. But also these fragments of the building that were retrieved and placed in front of the exhibition centre as a, to kind of commemorate this fantastic building that is, that is now lost. And the workmanship, of course, that was required. Uh, and I think it's, uh, the stones there are from uh, a grey granite from Mount Harcourt, which is a well-used stone throughout Melbourne, but much rarer, uh, a pink granite from Cape Wolumai in, um, on Phillip Island. And I think this was the only uh, time that that stone was used. And it's a beautiful pink stone that was transported by boat from there. And if you go to the beach on Cape Wellamai today, you will see fragments of the, the rock that was cut off, cut away from the quarry that existed then. It's probably easy now to segue from stone to ruins. And uh, you've spent a lot of time looking at industrial ruins in the, the north of England. Perhaps you'd like to tell us about, um, what, what do they say about us? The ruins project was a delightful thing to be involved in. And it's, it's important to say that I carried out most of this research in 2002, 2003, when if you went to most industrial cities in the length and breadth of Britain, you would find loads and loads of industrial ruins, uh, um, foundries, mills, uh, warehouses, all sorts of things that have been abandoned. Now, if you go, regeneration has kind of proceeded apace and that most of them have either been demolished or have been turned into, you know, executive flats or offices. But at that time, they were everywhere. And so one of the things that I used to like about them is you would walk into a ruin and you would kind of come across all sorts of traces of the past. And this was very different from going into a museum. If you go into a museum, uh, you'll see a, an artefact and it will be explained to you, usually by means of an inscription. Uh, but when you go into an industrial room, there's no such things there. But nevertheless, the place seems absolutely populated with the ghosts of the workers who were once there. You can see their tools, maybe scraps of their clothing, their, their workbenches, um, the football posters and the pop uh, posters that they put 
on the walls. They're kind of the art and, and slogans that they scrawled across space. So it, it was a kind of an extraordinary feeling going into a huge shop floor, for instance, and meeting all these people who weren't there. Much more powerful, I thought, I, I was felt, uh, encountering history in that way than going into a place where everything was kind of explained for, uh, to you. And of course, it set off your imagination, that's the point. I think when I, when I think about industrial ruins, I do think of almost child's play and actually sort of, or maybe teenagers play. Yeah. Uh, but actually, I just want to, I'm interested in the idea of where, does, uh, where do industrial ruins intersect with heritage? When does one become the other? Well, I think it's kind of interesting. I suppose industrial ruins are an unofficial kind of heritage. So uh, industrial ruins exist before they become heritage. So industrial ruins can become heritage when they're, when they're, when they're cleaned up, when all the debris is taken away, when uh, you can go on guided tours and there are information boards to tell you what happened there. So it's kind of, the industrial ruins I always think of as a kind of pre-heritage, or we might say an alternative kind of heritage, where I think a kind of, an, as I've said, an encounter with the past is all the more powerful for a sense of what the place felt like and what, how it might have felt to work there, the kind of tough industrial textures of everyday factory life. Who do you find makes the rules and actually says that one becomes history and actually enters the history books? Will and the Wrecker was around for 100 years, so his or their story continues, but who decides? I think it's a really, really important question, actually, is that, of course, it's kind of interesting. You mentioned Will and the Wrecker now, and I mentioned the, you know, the colonial building. Now there's no way that will be knocked down today. That will be seen as heritage. It would have been impossible, but of course, in the 1950s and 60s, people didn't value buildings in the same way. They thought that the past was obsolete, that things needed, that modernity needed and progress needed to kind of continue apace, and we needed to get rid of all this stuff so we could put up these kind of what people now describe as quite featureless, rectilinear, modern office buildings. But at the time, of course, nobody was thinking about heritage or preserving these kind of things. Yes, medieval castles and palaces, were, that they could be identified as heritage. But industrial heritage wasn't really part of the ways in which people valued particular kind of buildings and spaces. And I don't think we can blame them. I mean, they just wasn't in their minds then. They weren't thinking about that. Now we feel that, I mean, and I think a lot of people say this about Melbourne, is that enormous vandalism has been done to the fabric of the, especially the CBD, where there were the most extraordinary Gothic, you know, 1930s uh, uh, buildings and all sorts of other fantastic things. Uh, and they've gone. And, and we feel a sense of loss there, but it's only in retrospect that we kind of value these buildings and we wish that they were still there. I think it's, it's either funny or there's something, uh, there's some irony here in progress because these buildings were being destroyed so we could put up brutalist uh, car parks in the 1960s, which are now heritage. Yes, yes. Uh. No, it's kind of interesting. I mean, actually, it's kind of interesting, the brutalist story, because, of course, they were starting to be demolished. So vilified had they become, and it's only recently there are now some examples of brutalists. Yes, as you say, becoming kind of heritage. People get very kind of passionate about preserving them. Preserve everything at all costs. Um, so the, one of your earliest works, Touring the Taj, oh, yeah. as in Mahal, uh, seemed to throw the theory, the academic view of tourist studies on its head. No longer did you want us to look at tourism as purely a search for authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, would you like to talk about that? 
Yeah, I kind of found it was kind of interesting because I, that was my PhD study was the Taj Mahal and then it got turned into a book. And I think I was very surprised at the tourist theory or ways in which people had made sense of tourism at the time. And what they tended to do was they would say, tourists are this. So, for instance, tourists are searching for authenticity. Well, I think it, we, we've all been tourists and we know that maybe sometimes we search for authenticity. But most of the time, we couldn't give a fig about authenticity, and we're not thinking about it at all. We want to lie on the beach, for instance, right? Or, or we want to go dancing, or whatever it may be. But we're not looking for authenticity. So I found this kind of singular explanation of what tourism was to be really curious. And so why I chose the Taj Mahal, and why I, th I thought that would be really useful to explore, was because it was my idea that this is a global tourist site. Everybody knows it. Loads of foreign tourists go there, particularly at that time, lots of British and Americans and Europeans went. Uh, I knew that loads of backpackers would go as well, but I also knew that most of the tourists who go to the Taj Mahal, quite obviously, are Indian tourists. And so what I wanted to do was to go to one site, this very famous site, and I wanted to find out the different kinds of tourist practices that took place there. And of course, the backpackers, even if we just look at kind of the Western tourists, the backpackers do very different things to the package tourists, as you can imagine. Two words for you, Banglasi. Absolutely, Banglasi, yes. Perhaps we should explain what a Banglasi yeah, is. So a Banglasi is a, is a yoghurt drink uh, flavoured with uh, potent amounts of hashish. Uh, and so back, it was a common um, uh, um, leisure pursuit of backpackers to have a, a, a glass of Banglasi and then going to the Taj Mahal. And they had all day, they could hang out there. Uh, but the problem for me as a researcher was they were very difficult to interview at the, mo at the time. <laughs> Obviously they weren't in the most, uh, how can we put it, kind of logical frame of mind. And so I would say, what do you think of the Taj Mahal? And they would say, man, it's shimmering, it's multicoloured, look at how it's moving. And I had to say, mm, yes, <laughs> I see what you mean. <laughs> It was kind of interesting because they had all day, whereas on the other hand, the package tourists, many of whom were British, as I've said, the whole reason for them coming to India on, let's say, a two-week tour was to go to the Taj Mahal. They weren't so interested in anything else. They really wanted to go to the Taj Mahal. They were very excited about it. And as soon as they came through the gates of the Taj Mahal, out came the cameras, uh, and they would spend the time photographing furiously. But the problem was for them is that they were on guided tours on a coach tour and the coach operators didn't want them to stay at the Taj very long. They wanted to get them out of the Taj and into a carpet shop or a marble factory. They wanted to get their commission from these tourists. So the package tourists had come all the way to see this thing that they were so excited about and yet they couldn't stay there very long. And they used to argue and kick a big, big fight with, with the tour operators but of course they were too frightened of being left behind. Uh, and so they would have to go back on the coach. And it was kind of really interesting. You talk to them afterwards, after they'd been on the tour, and they were really, really upset that they hadn't had more time there. Um, and it was the other thing that was very interesting about the Taj is that lots of Indian tourists would go there, and Indian tourists are more sociable than the uh, Western package tourists. As I've explained, Western package tourists really want to photograph the Taj, usually by themselves. They want to stand there in splendid isolation, maybe sit on the seat that Princess Diana sat on when she went there alone after she'd split from Charles. And, um, but they, they wanted to kind of, what we say, kind of enact a romantic gaze, gaze at it in solitude. The Indian tourists come strolling in, chatting away, maybe eating, laughing, and the English package tourists would get very 
frustrated and I remember one saying to me this is terrible you're trying to interview me but how can we do this these Indian tourists are just crap they have no idea how to be tourists don't they know how important this place yes, is of course <laughs> uh, so they were really outraged that these Indians themselves didn't acknowledge what they thought was this incredible sight of beauty circling like a snobby shark around this idea of authenticity is perhaps the uh, the competition between tourists and travelers yeah. um, I don't know where to stand on this. I think everyone has the right to, to tour as they want, but there is that idea that travelling is far better than being a tourist. Absolutely, and backpackers use this all the time. They will say, and you, you will interview them, and, you'll, and you will say, so how do you feel being a tourist? And they will always say, we're not tourists. <laughs> we're travellers, we're adventurers. We come to see the real India. And of course, they do have a point in a sense that the, the sort of package tourists are somewhat shielded in their air-conditioned buses and luxury hotels uh, and they very rarely do they go do they walk the sort of ordinary streets of India but on the other hand backpackers tend to do the same kinds of things anyway to congregate in the backpacker hotspots you know go on the bank banana pancake trail going to the same kind of restaurants maybe going to an ashram to practice a bit of yoga going to Goa to to have a dance on the beach but I think you just described my holiday in 1997 yeah. <laughs> there were quite a few of us. <laughs> in a recent interview, you spoke about wanting to move away from the enormous ethnocentricity of geographical social theory. Yeah. What on earth do you mean by that? What I mean is that I, I really kind of just in, it, it related to what I was just saying about tourism being a search for authenticity. Well, this theory was made up by a middle class white American um, who I think really was talking about himself and his mates. So in other words, theory tends to be located. People make these assumptions about what everybody does from what they and their friends do. Um, if we think about this kind of more uh, extensively, we can think about the way that colonialism, for instance, produced authoritative forms of knowledge, uh, whereby you know, Australian, indigenous Australians, Africans, Indians were characterized and classified by Western scholars without ever uh, being involved with asking those people about how they interpreted themselves. Uh, and so in, a, in, in one sense, ethnocentrism refers to the way in which all kinds of knowledge come out of particular geographical locations. Uh, and, it, and now we live in a globalised world, it's really important to think about how we might make sense of, let's say, tourism or place or landscape from local perspectives, from local theories, from the kind of concepts that, that, that kind of local people uh, use and so one and what's really good about being in Australia actually now you mention this is that there's especially geographers and, and, and other scholars as well and now taking seriously the way in which Aborigines conceptualize the land that they move through and live on they have a, they mobilize a completely different theoretical set a whole series of different concepts which is neither no better nor no worse but the idea of kind of Western theory coming in and being used to interpret how everybody else makes sense of the world seems to be an absurdity. And so that ethnocentrism certainly continues and most theories in academia tend to be those that have been articulated by the kind of most influential theories of the West. But nevertheless, these are starting to be challenged. So how hard is it to see orthodoxy in thought and how hard is it to crack it apart? I mean, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because we all kind of consume those orthodoxies of thought. They, they become, I suppose the best way of saying it, is that they become habitual. They're part of our habitual way of thinking. And so we, we're not even aware, actually, of the, the orthodoxies that we ourselves 
articulate a lot of the time. But I think the thing to do, and the key thing to do, is to start to reflect upon that and to think, question everything. I mean, one of the things about cultural geography that I love is that we are entreated to question everything. No, there's no such thing as common sense. It doesn't exist. Right? We've got to interrogate everything, all the ways in which we make sense of the world, even the most mundane uh, ways in which we make sense of the world, the ways we eat, the way we dress, uh, you know, the ways we kind of catch the bus in the morning, the ways we go to school, all those things are worth exploring. It must make you very self-conscious. Most of the time, <laughs> you avoid those kinds of ideas, but sometimes, yes. <laughs> Your most cited work is national identity, yeah. popular culture and everyday life. Um, sorry to ask you this question, but in general, yeah. how does national identity get shaped? Uh, I think in, in, uh, in the sort of 19th century, national identity was shaped by an elite who handed down authoritative knowledge, systems of law, um, education systems and curricula. They identified national canons of literature, folklore, the great, they would set up national galleries and identify the kind of best pictures that have been painted by, by you know, uh, nationals. And so there was this kind of authoritative idea that, you know, we would, we would all know certain kinds of poems. Uh, uh, you know, if you're English, you know the paintings of Constable and Turner and these, these are the things that kind of evoke Englishness more than anything else. Um, but I think now, now we live in a world where information has proliferated and we live in a world where popular culture is much, much, much more powerful than any elite culture that was handed down to us um, by the authoritative. Uh, I think that national identity now seeds through popular culture. It's much more contested. It's focused on things like television, film, and obviously sport, for instance. Uh, the recent Ashes test gives us you know, a really good example of the ways in which kind of Englishness and Australianness are articulated uh, through cricket, how people uh, comment on that, how there might be, you know, typical Australian players or typical English players or whatever. So, and I, but I also think it's sort of articulated in our everyday habits. It's articulated, in, for instance, uh, in, in Britain, I'll give you an example, through getting a pint of milk on the doorstep, delivered every day, and then getting that pint of milk, taking it into the kitchen and making a cup of tea and then drinking that cup of tea and then getting on the bus, the double-decker bus, to work every day. All these very, very mundane things. Uh, you know, we might say that Australian identity, the habits, you've certainly taken on board some of those English habits, but for instance, one of the key things about coming to, to Melbourne, and I think this is a sort of Australia-wide uh, practice, is the love of coffee, the importance of the coffee, and the importance of quality coffee as well. <laughs> you know, so these things become really, really important. And it's also kind of finely tuned by the kind of vegetation, by the bird noises that we hear, by the kind of sensations, by the chocolate bars that we eat, but all, by the television that we watch, all those kind of things, I think, endlessly kind of contribute to the sustenance uh, of, of, of national identity, which certainly isn't as fixed as it used to be when the elite used to disseminate their kind of authoritative ideas. But I think now it's much more contested, it's much more complicated, it's much more dynamic. It's much bigger, it's much vaster, it takes on board many, many more elements. If, if popular culture is shaping our lives, is it a mirror or can it be a progressive force? I, I, I think it can be a progressive and a regressive force. I mean, for instance, one of the, one of the key elements about popular culture 
in the United Kingdom, which you, you also have to a certain extent here, but nowhere near as notorious, is the tabloid press, which is an aspect of, of popular culture. And, and some aspects of the tabloid press, or large aspects of the tabloid press in Britain, are solely concerned with stirring up fear. And usually the fear is about those who are not us, refugees, migrants, and those who might be seen as an enemy within, single parents, the feckless and the work shy. And so there's this endless kind of uh, construction of national identity uh, by identifying us and by identifying those who are not us. And that kind of takes place in a kind of popular cultural forum. This isn't kind of fine, uh, thought-out, articulated intellectual uh, politics. This is prejudice. And uh, it, it, it finds its uh, location in popular culture. But in the same way, there are elements of popular culture that act against that. So, for instance, we might talk about the ways in which certain forms of media produce these exclusive ideas of, of uh, Britishness. That Britishness is white, that Britishness is kind of uh, traditional. But then, in, on the other hand, you have lots of bands forming now in Britain, you know, made up of young people who are, are absolutely and utterly multicultural. And the music is multicultural, it takes its influence from all, all sorts of uh, places. But it's British, it's, that distinctive mix is British. Um, and so it's not quite, popular culture is both regressive, it's both progressive and much more besides. It's often commercial, so how does yeah. this have an impact? Does, does economics reinforce aspects via popular culture? No, I think economics certainly does. I mean, and, and uh, 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 you know, uh, businesses latch on to those ideas that are popular, latch on to those ideas that seem to attract people. Um, and of course that, that cuts right across the kind of political spectrum, uh, if you will, but po popular culture isn't only commercial. It's also about people in, in Britain taking care of an allotment going to church, you know, joining the Boy Scouts, playing football on a Sunday. These are not economic matters, really. I mean, you've got to pay a little bit to do these things, but they're not really about, they're not really fashioned by kind of commer a, a commercial profit-seeking uh, motive. We've talked about your past work. Let's just move into some of your more recent studies, which are focused on light. And I was mm. delighted to hear that this intense academic study was born from a love of Chav Bling. Um, <laughs> I think you've got to probably describe what Chav Bling is and what it's meant to you. Yes, OK. So this really started off when uh, me and a colleague, Steve Millington, in Man Manchester Metropolitan, we were driving around Manchester near to Christmas. And uh, we were driving through an area of, of state housing or, or of kind of, you know, low-cost private housing. And we noticed that in a lot of the houses were adorned with these very bright, highly colourful, sometimes quite silly, uh, animated lights that covered them celebrating Christmas. And every time we go past one of these houses, one of us would always say, "Way!" you know, we were pleased, it made us happy, it's festive. And we thought this would be a really interesting topic. Uh, for, uh, for research and so when we got back to our offices we went on the internet to find out what we could find and all we came across were opinion pages, uh, letter columns, um, websites in which the people who made these Christmas lights, who, who, had, who arranged these Christmas lights on the houses were absolutely vilified as feckless, disgusting, hideous wasteful i won't chavs chavs meaning a kind of a real low class working class uh, person L a lowly work a, a lowly member of the working class 
with no taste whatsoever. And we were a bit shocked by this. We thought, you know, why are people getting so upset by what, after all, is just a kind of festive celebration? And of course, <clears throat> as the more that we looked into it, the reason was that these people were committing the greatest sin that anybody can commit in contemporary Britain, at least for some sections of the middle class, I guess, which is to commit a crime against taste, against good taste. Uh, and so they hated these things, they hated these, these uh, Christmas lights. And then, interestingly, we went to interview the people who put the Christmas lights up, and actually they were all really community-spirited, generous, charitable people. Many of them had collection boxes in the gardens, uh, for those who were looking at the lights, they said, you know, give it, throw a few coppers in uh, and we'll put it to the kind of local hospital. Um, some of them had wanted to stop putting the Christmas lights up, but the neighbours, you know, put a lot of pressure on them to put them up because they liked them so much and it brought so much joy to the area and to their kids. And so we found there was a complete mismatch in the ways in which these people were portrayed uh, and the ways in which they actually were. And it was quite, quite shocking and it just, of course, what it brought it home to us was just how alive and well class politics are in Britain today and they're not articulated through you know necessarily industrial action or strikes or pay but are, uh, they're articulated around matters of taste and what is believed to be good taste but of course Christmas lights aren't really about good taste nobody puts them up wanting to make an impression about how artistic they are they don't want to do that they want to have fun they want to be silly they want to be kind of festive they want to put up bright cheerful colours it's not about taste um, light festivals can be large and small uh, they can express the vernacular and the primal and high art um, how do we evaluate life fest light festivals and their place in society and how do you measure success it's really that's a good question that's a really difficult question as well because they're so varied now and also because they're increasing at such an exponential rate so light festivals are, are emerging all over the world now they really are uh, and, and they, as you say, they range from the very small, from the kind of community lantern parades uh, and things like the kind of Gertrude Street Festival, the Projection Festival, which is a local festival, of course, to gigantic things like Sydney's Vivid and, and Melbourne's White Night. And so it's kind of hard to compare them in many ways because they do different things. Certainly the larger festivals are about producing spectacle and about getting people out. My view is that those festivals as well can be kind of quite enchanting because they always change the feel and the meaning of the city, if only for a night. Uh, and some people talk about how these large festivals simply produce passive spectatorship. People just sit there stunned by the projections on the exhibition uh, building, for instance, uh, and they don't think about it. They're not, it's not a critical or, or challenging work of art. I don't think that matters. I think in some ways it is because it challenges the way in which you perceive the building. The building looks totally different to the ways in which you're used to seeing it. So I kind of think it also produces a particular kind of atmosphere where people are at liberty to kind of wander a street that's usually clogged by trams and cars, for instance. And so it transforms the meaning of the city. Uh, and so the ways in which things look uh, are transformed. I think the smaller festivals are kind of really important for producing a sense of community. They're usually much more locally involved. Often the work will relate to particular aspects of local identity. So the Gertrude Street certainly does that. It will talk about the history of, uh, you know, Aboriginal activism in the area, for instance, or, or the the, the uh, activism carried out by women in the 19 uh, in the 1920s seeking the vote. So all those sorts of things are kind of important. 
and, and they, they're kind of more nurtured and more cared for smaller scale, more intimate uh, festivals. So but the, the point is, I think, that in both these cases, light transforms the world. Light makes the world look weird. It makes you look at things differently. It makes you look at things again. Uh, and light also carries with it all sorts of moods and feelings as well. So the world after dark becomes utterly transformed, if only for a few hours, in, in kind of quite magical ways. And I think that can, both in terms of large festival and small festival, that can help to foster a, a, a deeper sense of place, a deeper sense of belonging to a city or a locality. We start off talking about how you seem to be having fun with your work mm. and following your passions. Is there any particular advice that's been useful to you and is there any particular advice that you'd pass on to up-and-coming students and researchers? I mean, it's a difficult one, this, because I think, you know, we, we all tend to get uh, caught up in university politics. And, I mean, to be blunt, a lot of the universities have it very difficult these days. They have to kind of fashion policies that maybe the higher-ups don't necessarily agree with. But, what, of course... What, no bang lessies. Yeah, for instance. <laughs> and so I think that's kind of quite difficult. Uh, so we sometimes live in a difficult situation and, and, and so university policies of course impact upon staff uh, but I think what I would say is that I think some people get completely demoralised by those practices and, and what I would say is really after all being an academic is a fantastic job we get the chance to explore and teach about things that we find really interesting I mean and that's an amazing job to have just that, just that alone and so people can sometimes get demoralised and they lose sight of, of the richness and the kind of pleasures of academia, I think. And so despite what kind of policies might, might be taking place, and these may not be particularly positive experiences, but I think we always need to, to retain an understanding of what knowledge, of what being involved in the kind of knowledge industry is and how kind of pleasurable it is and how valuable it is as well and how enriching it is not only to us but to our students and to the kind of wider academic community and beyond. Finally, what do you do first when you find yourself in a new place? Okay, what I do, when I, the first thing that I do when I came to Melbourne, because I came in the summer, was to buy a hat. <laughs> that was absolutely critical. <laughs> in England we don't need to worry about this kind of heat at all. We're not going to our heads aren't going to be ravaged by the sun in quite the same way. But apart from that, the, the thing that I always do when I, when I go to a place is I walk. You know, I, don't, I, don't, I still walk, but I think actually getting to know a place, the best way you can do that is to walk. And not necessarily walk anywhere, but just kind of wander around and pick up vibes, pick up, fe pick up feelings, uh, try to work out how things work. Uh, and, and to, of course, invariably, you come across all sorts of surprising things as well. So I think walking is probably uh, the best thing to do whenever you go to a new place. Tim Edensor, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks to Dr Timothy Edensor, Teacher of Cultural Geography at the Manchester Metropolitan University and Principal Research Fellow at the School of Geography, University of Melbourne. And thanks to our reporter Steve Grimwade. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on March 1, 2018. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Audio engineering by Arch Cuthbertson. Co-production by Dr Andy Horvath and Sylvie Van Wall. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2018, the University of Melbourne. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, drop us a review on iTunes and check out the rest of the episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis, producer and editor. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.